0: This is the My Dark Path Podcast. Tokyo, Barcelona, and Sydney, a handful of the greatest cities in the world, each with a rich history and a distinct culture and flavor that shows off the true breadth of diversity of the human race. And each of these cities and dozens of others share a common element that changed each of them. They all played host to the Olympic Games. The Olympics are kicking off in Tokyo, one year late. I visited many Olympic cities and was fortunate to attend multiple events around the Salt Lake Winter Olympics in 2002. In all of these host cities, you can still see the footprint the Games left behind. Not only in the facilities, but in the historical accomplishments and many legendary stories. So we're devoting this episode and our next one to walking through some of the more overlooked paths in the history of the Olympic games. Now, trust me when I say that as soon as we opened up this topic for exploration, what we found was incredible. The story of the modern Olympics starts with Baron Pierre de Coubertin. He was a complicated man, an educator, historian, philanthropist. He spoke multiple languages, traveled the world, and even argued for relief for the lower classes. He also identified himself as a royalist, believed that the French monarchy should be restored, and believed strongly in the idea of separation of the social classes, a place for every man and every man in his place. He grew up French in the second half of the 19th century. He saw the destruction of the Franco-Prussian War as a young boy and was deeply troubled by this experience. He believed, like many others, that the human race was headed towards self-destruction unless measures could be taken to foster peaceful exchange rather than hostile confrontation between the great nations of the world. To the Baron, the idea of reviving the ancient Olympic Games brought hope, theoretically apolitical, and devoid of the trappings of any modern religion, a reborn Olympic Games, he imagined, could be friendly, unifying displays of athletic prowess, artistic exchanges, and a peaceful space in which to resolve the thorny diplomatic issues of the day. After all, at the height of the ancient games, the Greeks managed to enforce months-long peace between hundreds of combative city-states. If they could do that without the benefit of modern communication, then what could a modern Olympics do in the era of the telegram, the transatlantic cable, and the steam engine? Could it foster a renaissance in art, athletics, and peaceful commerce? De Cobertat had a specific vision for these games that he was determined to see realized. No doubt this worked to his favor because wealthy individuals, some of them even monarchs, had been trying to revive the Olympics since at least the 16th century, but with very little success. But the baron, legendarily stubborn, could be an absolute marionette or disciplinarian at times. It often requires a firm hand to drive change and innovative ideas. In what you might call one of history's perfect storms, these traits at that time and place allowed Pierre de Coubertin to succeed when others could not. With the aid of some brilliant minds from around Europe, he created the International Olympic Committee and brought about the rebirth of the Olympic Games for a modern audience. There was nothing about the Olympics that the Baron took more seriously than his belief that these new games should be amateur contests. The Olympics allowed for people of all countries and all classes to compete on an equal field, to represent the best and highest ideal of the classical citizen, One part laborer, one part scholar, one part athlete. The Baron would have it no other way. He considered other amateur events to be too classist, restricted to members of exclusive clubs or societies. Members of the lower classes didn't have the sort of leisure income it took to be in these clubs, which passively disqualified them. Pierre de Coubertin thought competitors at the Olympics should come from every race, every creed, and every economic class. This led to an idea that, to modern Olympic viewers, must seem very strange. At the first modern Olympics in Athens in 1896, anyone who showed up on the day of competition would have had an opportunity to compete. Just about any amateur was eligible so long as they made the trip. Sometimes an event would have 500 athletes registered, but only 13 would actually show up. And as for what events they would compete in? The Baron sincerely believed that sports were essential to creating well-rounded bodies and minds. But there was more to his admiration of the ancient Olympics. You see, the classical Olympics were more than sporting events. They included poetry readings, debates, art, theater, diplomatic meetings between sworn enemies. He wanted all of this in the modern games. This created an argument which in some respects carries on today. What constitutes an official Olympic event? It turns out the modern Olympics took a long time to work out the kinks and what qualified, but that's what we're exploring in this first of two Olympic episodes on My Dark Path. These are the unusual, the forgotten, and the absurd events run at the modern games. So let's see how deep we can dive. And by the way, seeing how deep you could dive was one of those events. Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. So if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. And since friends stay in touch, please reach out to us on Instagram, sign up for our newsletter at mydarkpath.com, or just send an email to explore at mydarkpath.com. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, thanks for listening and choosing to walk the dark paths of the world with me. Let's get started with Episode 16, The Forgotten Games of the Modern Olympics. Part 1 To lay some groundwork, we need to talk about the IOC, They've grown into a uniquely powerful and influential global organization. The Olympic Games can transform a major city, bringing the world to its doorstep with an economic impact in the billions. They even have a permanent observer status at the United Nations and the power to take the floor at General Assembly meetings. They've been rocked in recent years by allegations of corruption and by dramatic changes in leadership. But what's most pertinent to our story today is that, as custodians of their own history, they've dabbled in some revisions as well as some redactions. And this is certainly something that bothers our lead historian, Alex Bagasy. Most of the great international cultural and sporting events in the world today log everything they can to create an authoritative record. And if embarrassing truths are captured along the way, well, that's the price of fidelity. If you acknowledge them, your errors can be a part of the story of your progress. The IOC, though, doesn't quite work that way. They've gone through great trouble to reclassify some past events as unofficial, even when there's inarguable evidence that they were official at the time. They even retroactively disowned an entire Games, the 1906 Athens Olympics, which is actually the subject of our next episode. I mention this because in the early days of the Olympics, there was no effective distinction between official and exhibition events. This made it possible to try all sorts of unusual contests. And that's exactly what the early organizers did. The first modern Olympics were held at Athens, Greece in 1896. The Athenians were thrilled, but nobody knew exactly what to expect. Strangers arrived from all over the world, many without warning to compete or observe, and a surprisingly large number of native Greeks joined them. Athletes came in all shapes and sizes from all walks of life, just as the baron had hoped. One of those Greek competitors was an ex-soldier called Spiridon Louis, who quickly made it through qualification trials to participate in what was supposed to be a one-time event. But we'll get to him later. A great many events were sports that have become part of the standard Olympic canon. Boxing, swimming, fencing, the discus, shot put, and of course, the standard by which all Olympic events are judged, Olympic rope climbing. You heard me correctly. Your worst memories of gym class or boot camp were recreated on an international scale. It's as simple as it sounds. A smooth, unknotted rope, 14 meters long, was hung from an elevation of just over that length. Competitors had to begin in a seated position and pull themselves up a smooth, unknotted 14-meter rope using only their arms. An instrument similar to a tambourine was at the top and they had to strike it to finish the climb. And they only got one try. Competitors were judged on their speed as well as their form. Unfortunately, the records aren't thorough enough to explain what good form meant, so perhaps a slow climber might make up some points by showing a flair for the dramatic. Five competitors showed up for the first Olympic rope climb. Only two of them, both Greeks, made it to the top. The third place winner, a German, became a medalist without even reaching the tambourine. The official record doesn't show how much time he struggled on the rope, just how far he made it. 12.5 out of 14 meters. Spectators apparently loved the event, the incredible exertion, the sense of triumph from reaching the top. But even the competitors with climbing experience complained that the distance was too great, that the smoothness of the rope made the task nearly impossible. So the IOC kept the rope climb but started to update the rules. The event was held four more times. Now the rope was just eight meters instead of 14 and climbers got three attempts and were scored on their best finish. The 1904 gold medalist, George Iser of the United States, made it to the top in just seven seconds. His slowest competitor took 11 minutes. My arms are burning just thinking about that. The rope climb of 1896 was popular enough that the 1900 Olympics added another rope event, one of the most ancient competitive sports that is still played in schoolyards and military bases today, the tug of war. It's undeniably fun to watch, whether performed by elite athletes or employees at a company picnic, and it's confirmed that it was a regular contest in the ancient Olympic Games, where men who rode the banks of oars in ancient Greek galleys were said to have had a distinct advantage. The Olympic tug-of-war featured two teams of eight men per side, pulling against each other on a long, wide hemp rope. The objective was to pull the opposing team six feet in your direction within a timed round. If neither team could complete this, a further five-minute sudden death was permitted. I can't imagine the level of exertion it would take to constantly pull against another team for five full minutes. Some probably felt like the phrase sudden death could become literal. The powerhouse in the Olympic tug-of-war were British. They have a strong history of amateur sport and sports education that helped inspire Baron de Coubertin's Olympic vision. On top of that, the British tug-of-war teams were usually made up of constables drawn from the City of London police. The tug-of-war started at Paris in 1900 and lasted all the way until the 1920 Olympics at Antwerp. And in that span, the British won two gold medals and a silver and set an example of the sort of working-class athlete that De Coubertin so admired. Part 2 Now about those Paris Games. The Second Modern Olympics is where some of our favorite, unusual events reared their heads. The City of Light is where Pierre de Coubertin had always hoped to relaunch the Games, and we'll discuss how they ended up in Athens in our next episode. Now, in case you weren't aware, the French are a fiercely patriotic people. Remember how they pressured the Walt Disney Corporation to change the name of their theme park from Euro Disney to Disneyland Paris? Well, this helps explain a lot of the Paris Olympics. The organizers were determined to create an event that the French could be proud of. What they produced is practically unrecognizable to what we consider to be the Olympics today, but it was undeniably French and therefore provides a bounty of strange sports, most of which were never attempted again. For example, this is where Croquet came to the Olympics for the first time. Now there are elements to this event that were very progressive for the time. Instead of separating the divisions by gender, men and women were allowed to compete with one another or play as mixed teams. But alas, on the day of competition, only 10 people showed up to play, 7 men and 3 women. And as a further problem, all the competitors who showed up were French. So it's hard to call it an international competition when only one country is competing. There were players in other countries, but they complained that the croquet being played was specifically a French style, with rules and customs unfamiliar to the other players. While we don't know everyone's personal factors, it is reasonable to guess that some registered competitors looked over the rules and decided that the deck was stacked too much against them to bother traveling to Paris. Of these ten French competitors, eight of them won medals. This did wonders to fatten the medal count for France, but at the cost of other nations, as seen the whole affair as a farce. When Croquet returned to the 1904 games in St. Louis, It was of a different variation on the game, known as roquet. But once again, this version of the game was largely unfamiliar to players outside of North America. This time only four people showed up to play, and all of them Americans. It's not hard to guess which country took the medals. One of the issues we see in these early games is that the lack of consistent international standards led to disappointing, lopsided, or just plain strange outcomes. Croquet never appeared again as an official event, though a proposal was apparently made in the 1920s for some sort of women's only bicycle croquet event. I think that sounds sort of delightful if potentially chaotic and painful to the knees. If organizers had a hard time attracting competitors for Olympic croquet, they had the opposite problem for another event in the Paris Games, Olympic angling. That's right, fishing with a rod and reel was an Olympic event with medals awarded and everything. Fishing was an enormously popular pastime in the French countryside, and when word spread of an Olympic contest, 600 competitors showed up. Over 560 of them were French. Remember, just about any amateur who wanted to could be an Olympic athlete for a day. Like croquet, this was another event that allowed women to compete either alone or in mixed teams. Competitors were judged on the largest fish caught, as well as the quantity of fish caught. One heat was held for all non-French anglers, three more heats for all the French people who weren't from Paris, and the final two heats were all Parisians. This narrowed the field to 57 finalists, one of them a woman who was only identified in the records as Madame B. Among them, they caught 887 fish, all of which were thrown back, and won a total of 3,800 francs. Although records are vague about whether this was considered an official event or simply an exhibition, most sources say that medals were provided for the event. Sadly, we don't know what happened to them or even who won them. They might still be out there, Olympic fishing medals, hiding in a curio cabinet that belonged to somebody's great-grandmother. We can't say why Olympic fishing never returned to the games. It obviously had plenty of interested participants. Maybe it lacked the excitement as a spectator sport, or maybe another event at the Paris Games turned people off to the idea of events that involved doing harm to living animals. Not once, but twice, the Paris Olympics held a pigeon shooting competition with real pigeons, and there were 166 human participants, and there were thousands of pigeons. Now, we don't know the specifics of the rules, what sort of firearms were permitted or prohibited, Modern Olympic shooting events painstakingly define what constitutes a legal weapon, from the weight of the stock down to the length of the barrel and the width of the bore. Olympic pigeon shooting seems to have no such restrictions. Some surviving photographs depict men with pistols, yet one of the champions in a publicity photo is shown holding a lever-action rifle. We do know that victory was defined by the number of pigeons shot. Six birds were to be released approximately 27 meters from each competitor. The shooter had to down at least two birds in order to qualify for the next round. A hefty prize of 20,000 francs would go to the winner. The athletes in this event seemed to have treated it as a semi-formal affair. Rather than practical attire, men wore high fashion sporting clothes with waistcoats and jackets. Some even wore top hats. Their snappy outfits created quite a contrast with the carnage of the event. At least 300 birds were killed, and the attendees described blood and feathers flying everywhere, while fashionable men doffed their hats to one another and exchanged witty remarks. It almost sounds like an old Monty Python skit. The champions of the two events were a Belgian named Leon de Landon, who bagged 21 birds, and an Australian, Donald McIntosh, who killed 22. Perhaps it's a wonder that there are any pigeons left in Paris. Now, an odd side note. There was also a pigeon racing event at the Paris Olympics. We are assured that the two competitions were unrelated and that the racing pigeons didn't have to fear being shot. This is one of those examples of revised history we told you about. The modern IOC now claims that pigeon shooting was never really a true Olympic event, but there's ample evidence that the IOC at the time thought otherwise, as did the participants. It's a gruesome thing to have on record, but the point of a record is that it's supposed to be thorough. Anyway, not every sport at the 1900 Paris Games was violent or unfairly slanted toward the host country. Some were genuinely innovative, like obstacle swimming. Now, this is a sport in which swimmers still compete today, but it only appeared as an official Olympic event this one time. Now, obstacle swimming is just what it sounds like. Competitors must negotiate an aquatic obstacle course populated by things that might naturally be found in the water. Boats, pilings, sandbars, and natural barriers like sunken rocks and trees. Supposedly, the original idea came about after a competition held in the Thames, a great river that runs through London. Swimmers who entered this event in Paris had to swim a 200-meter course and negotiate three significant obstacles – climb over a pole, then over a row of anchored boats, and for the final challenge, another row of boats, only this time, the swimmers had to go under them. Perhaps this sounds a bit like today's popular TV program, America Ninja Warrior. Only 12 swimmers from five countries entered the event. And while we can't say for certain why, it's worth pointing out that the race was held in the Seine, the river that runs through Paris. The sign is not renowned for cleanliness, and it was far worse in 1900, perhaps arguably toxic. It's standard in these events to have to swim against the current, but in this race, the competitors were also swimming directly into the outflow of the Parisian sewers. If any of them felt any disgust or illness from this, it's lost to history, though some did complain that it made the river current artificially stronger. The gold ultimately went to Australia's Frederick Lane, who completed the course in two minutes, 38.4 seconds, just two seconds ahead of Otto Wall of Austria-Hungary. The Paris games also featured underwater swimming, a race to complete laps while completely submerged. Now this sounds like a challenge worthy of some truly elite athletes, but apparently it didn't work out so well for spectators. They couldn't see what was happening. Even the judges could barely see. As with obstacle swimming, this experiment didn't make it out of Paris. The water inspired a great many Olympic experiments. So let's cross the ocean to see a few more. The year is 1904 and the St. Louis Olympics are being held alongside the 1904 World's Fair. The games are struggling to attract attention, so the organizers experiment with some new and hopefully exciting sports. They seize on one event, which has been growing in popularity in the United States and Great Britain. It's a diving event, but unlike other events, it's not about what you do in the air. This event is known as plunge for distance. The rules state that an athlete is to dive from a stationary platform approximately 18 inches above the water. Upon entering the water, they must glide face down as deep into the water as they can go without any assistance from their arms or legs. Whoever reaches the greatest depth in 60 seconds wins. As an Olympic event, it was something of a bust. As with that underwater swimming event, it doesn't offer much for spectators. Only five athletes registered, and every one of them was a member of the New York Athletic Club, which makes it neither international nor fully amateur. To win the gold, William Dickey makes a dive of 62 feet and 6 inches. That sounds like a lot, although it doesn't approach the world record at the time which was 79 feet and 3 inches. Once the eyes of the world focused on plunge for distance, people had a hard time buying into it as a legitimate sport. Our favorite summary of the whole spectacle was published by John Keeman of the New York Times in 1924.
1: Not an athletic event at all, but a competition favoring mere mountains of fad who fall in the water more or less successfully and depend upon inertia to get their points for them. An
0: 1893 English book entitled Swimming describes it thusly.
1: The diver moves about 30 or 40 feet at a pace, somewhat akin to a snail, and to the uninitiated, the contests appear absolute wastes of time. Despite all the fun critics have
0: had at its expense, it actually regained some popularity. Some dedicated fans were even trying to get it returned to the Olympics. In 2016, several Olympic divers and swimmers were approached and admitted fascination with the idea and an openness to trying it. Some have already been participating in informal events. So maybe it's possible we'll see these plunging divers resurface in our lifetime. When a really talented athlete moves through the water, it's uniquely beautiful. The subtlest movements can be almost poetic, and this is part of the reason why aquatic events have been popular since the revival of the Games. No doubt you've experienced synchronized swimming. This remarkable combination of swimming, dance, and gymnastics was invented in 1907 by an Australian ballerina and underwater performer named Annette Kellerman. The challenging choreography can appear almost spectacular when performed by elite competitors, but it requires years of planning and practice to be competitive at the Olympic level. And by the way, if you want to be a synchronized swimmer, you need to present a new routine at every international contest, something very few sports require. It's also one of the few Olympic events in which only women compete. Perhaps because of that last fact, synchronized swimming has struggled to gain acceptance as, quote, a real sport, when compared with the events like the javelin throw. Another unusual Olympic event may have also hampered its reputation, solo synchronized swimming. Like synchronized swimming in groups or pairs, the goal is to perform an elaborate aquatic dance routine to music. Only here, a swimmer performs alone and is judged by their execution and timing with the music. Now, this is how Annette Kellerman originally performed as she pioneered the sport. But for audiences and the IOC, it just didn't rise to the level of an event that they wanted to see. It was tried at the 1984 games and continued on in 88 and 92, but was discontinued as a distinct event after that. It makes me think back to that definition of an amateur Olympian. In a solo event, anyone with enough enthusiasm could certainly jump into a pool, splash around. Whereas a highly synchronized team is likely to need some major support. But the latter is absolutely more exciting as a contest. So is this a case where the Olympics developed an event that went against that original vision? And did that original vision need to evolve in order to respect what its audience wanted? This seems like the right time to get a little more perspective by stepping outside of the question of how we define Olympic sports. Because as we said at the beginning, the idea of reviving the Olympics was that many events would not be sports at all. So let's discuss the Cultural Olympics and the Artistic Olympics. They're not well remembered today, but they played a pivotal role in the development of the games we now enjoy. Part
1: 3
0: In the original ambition for a modern Olympic Games, an Olympian wouldn't just be an athlete. An Olympian could be a philosopher, a scholar, an actor, a dancer, a sculptor, a painter, or an engineer. The best and brightest from all the nations of the world. Even after he finished the Herculean efforts of establishing the Olympics, Baron de Coubertin worked hard to introduce an arts program. This wasn't easy. The Olympics were already proving to be an enormous financial burden for their host countries and the additional expense and logistics of a separate arts program proved to be an insurmountable obstacle. Serious planning was underway to include them at the Rome Games of 1908, but when the Italians were forced to step down as hosts and the Games quickly relocated to London, every resource was required just to ensure the Games happened at all. But his vision was finally realized at the 1912 Olympic Games in Stockholm, Sweden. The REF framework introduced in 1912 had five divisions, architecture, literature, music, painting, and sculpture. And there were three basic rules. One, all art should be completed before the games. Not surprisingly, spectators didn't want to watch paint dry. Two, an art project should be original, produced for the Olympics and neither published nor displayed prior to the Olympic games in which it had been entered. And three, the project had to be inspired in some way by a sport beyond that the possibilities were broad your saxophone solo could be competing against a symphony this worked out all right the first time when there were only 35 competitors in the entire program but the more it grew the more important it was to start drawing distinctions gold silver and bronze medals were supposed to be awarded in all these categories Though, when they actually happened, some competitions had no medals and instead awarded contracts, commissions, cash prizes, and the like. In a strange wrinkle to the rules, an artist could actually enter multiple works of art, making it possible for one person to win all three medals in a single competition. We don't see an indication of this happening, but it was a weakness that critics were all too eager to point out. The arts program divided Olympic spectators. At the 1920 games in Antwerp, Europe was still deeply traumatized by the Great War, which had just ended months before. With Belgium's countryside ravaged as a part of the Western Front, an arts program felt like a hollow sideshow. But as time passed in that period between the World Wars, there was a mini renaissance in the arts, as cultures and communities saw the value in bringing back our collective humanity. When the Olympics returned to Paris in 1924, the arts program grew significantly in popularity. From 35 entries in 1912, now it almost saw 200. Some of them even came from the Soviet Union, which was otherwise boycotting the Games. By the Amsterdam Olympics in 1928, 200 entries became 1,100. And in 1932, as the Olympics came to Los Angeles for the first time, the arts program reached its zenith. It's not often discussed, but the sports side of the 1932 games was something of a disaster. Los Angeles wasn't really a global city yet, and the west coast of the United States was still developing. The whole county had a population of just 1.2 million. That's smaller than Detroit was at the time. And the worldwide Great Depression cost a lot of people their ability to travel. Los Angeles found itself with beautiful, world-class athletic facilities that were half-filled, with many of the best athletes on earth stuck at home. The arts, however, were a completely different story. Arts entries were publicly displayed at the Los Angeles Museum of Science, History and Art near the campus of the University of Southern California. For the first time ever, the arts drew more fans than the sporting events combined. More than 400,000 people visited the museum with lines wrapping around the block. It was cheaper and easier to send a painting than a person to LA and easier and cheaper for a visitor to stroll through a museum than go to the Olympic Stadium. Additionally, the arts program had become much more diverse since its origin. There was even a fiercely contested Olympic event for city planning. Music was divided into multiple categories, instrumental, orchestral, and a combined category for solo and choral music. And when the Olympics moved on to Berlin in 1936, the public was permitted to attend grand performances of the musical division entries. And the irony is, the booming success of this alternative to Olympic sports helped to bring about its demise because it forced a question that has lurked around this entire story. What was the actual definition of an Olympic amateur? In 1928, the IOC made a fateful decision. Artists who entered their works into the Olympics would be allowed to sell those works at the Games. It must have made sense at the time. For many of these works, this would be their brightest spotlight, their biggest audience. This would be the moment they had the most value. This decision paid off handsomely for many artists, so much so that some began to exhibit their works in Los Angeles prior to the opening of the Games, hoping to get the advance attention of wealthy bidders. This was clearly forbidden by the rules of the arts program, but the IOC failed to put a stop to it. Controversy began to spread, with some IOC members arguing that for this reason, the arts program needed to end. Their argument was briefly tabled due to the Second World War. The first post-war Olympics happened in London in 1948. They were known as the Austerity Games because Great Britain and most of Europe were still suffering from shortages. With nearly all of their citizens still rationing, the British games needed to be held on a very limited budget. While the arts program was welcome overall, the sight of artists auctioning off their works to the wealthy came off as vulgar. The IOC decided it was time to make a real study into who had been entering these arts contests. The results of their 1949 report were either stunning or not surprising at all depending on your expectations. It turned out that the typical arts program entry did in fact come from a person who made money in the field where they'd submitted. In fact, the overwhelming majority of Olympic artists were professionals and their numbers had steadily grown over time. With the idea of amateur competition still so important to the core of the Olympics, this was simply too much for the critics. The arguments were fierce. Didn't this violate the spirit of the Olympics? How could an artist talented enough to compete globally manage to never make a penny from their work? How could they have the time to produce great art if it wasn't earning them money? It was the same argument that was happening in the sports program, only in this case the evidence was impossible to ignore. In retrospect, it was naive to imagine that someone could engage in a sophisticated architectural work of city planning as a completely amateur hobby. Perhaps the arts program had simply outgrown the ability to hold on to this pure and stubbornly held vision. The IOC was deadlocked over this debate. Neither side could muster a majority and neither side would budge, and this gave the arts program a stay of execution, and it was scheduled for the 1952 Olympics in Helsinki. Artists began to create their entries, and some of them even submitted early, and then an unexpected hitch. Finland was financially exhausted from two wars with the Soviet Union. They determined they could afford to fund an arts program or a sports program, but not both. They chose sports. The arts program was demoted to an informal exhibition. Artists would be welcome to attend and their work would be placed on display, but there would be no judging, no prizes and little or no promotion. The exhibition was appreciated even successfully by its dramatically diminished standards. But most important to Finland, it cost virtually nothing. This was another case where the arts program may have been a victim of its own success. The IOC reconsidered the matter and reached a final verdict. Going forward, the arts would be confined to an exhibition at the Olympics, no competitive program, no prizes, and no worries about who was an amateur and who wasn't. In both sports and the arts, it seems as though it was hard to reconcile Pierre de Coubertin's dream of amateurism with the reality of elite global competition. Did the humble commoner capable of superhuman feats ever really exist? Well, in at least one legendary case, the answer is yes. Let's go back to that first modern Olympics, Athens in 1896, and that ex-soldier we mentioned named Spiridon Lewis. part 4 The race known as the Marathon commemorates a pivotal moment in the history of the western world. In 490 BC, an army of allied Greek soldiers defeated a massive invasion by Persia at the plain of Marathon. This one victory arguably saved Europe from domination by the Persian Empire and allowed the seeds of democracy to spread from Athens. At the time of the battle, the entire Athenian army was at Marathon, while the Athenian navy was trying to block the Persians from getting reinforcements. The city-state of Athens itself was undefended. Citizens were terrified. The Persians were known for burning down hostile cities, looting their wealth, and enslaving their inhabitants. If the Greeks lost at Marathon, the city would be doomed. But when the Greeks won, a soldier named Pheidippides was asked to do the impossible, run from Marathon all the way back to Athens to announce that the Persians had been defeated. Over the prior two days, Pheidippides had already run something like 150 miles, carrying messages across the front lines. But he accepted his duty, and after running over 25 miles to Athens, he uttered the words, we are victorious, and then collapsed from exhaustion and died. Some of the details of the story have been colored by legend over the years, but the battle and its stakes were real, and the story of Pheidippides and his sacrifice as Paul Revere's midnight ride is to us Americans. The marathon foot race at the 1896 Games was designed to celebrate that event. It was a matter of immense pride to the Greeks and several former and active Greek soldiers entered. Spyridon Lewis was one of them. He had a good military record, and it seems he was encouraged to enter the race by a former commanding officer. Some accounts say that he was an itinerant worker who did odd jobs, while others claim he was a shepherd. It's possible he did both in the years after his service, but it's certain that he never belonged to any of the elite sporting clubs that Baron de Coubertin had criticized. He was an unknown when he entered, but the people who were there remember him assuring anyone who asked that he would win. His confidence was charming, but it didn't seem warranted. During his qualifying run, he finished fifth. There were well-known Greek and French runners on the course who were much more favored. Spyridon began with a slow and steady pace, an unembellished style that surprised other runners. But he had a plan. He had carefully studied the course, plotted how to use his own capabilities against the local terrain. This race had never been run before, but when it started, he knew exactly how he was going to run it. As the miles went by, the race leaders, the ones who had set a much faster early pace, started to fade. Some gave up, and slowly but surely, Spiridon Lewis gained ground. His tactics were better than the other competitors' muscles. Incredibly, halfway through the race, he stopped for a breather at a town along the route, where he was treated to an orange and a glass of cognac. He wasn't even in the lead, but he thought it was the right time to catch his breath. Observers asked if he thought he could catch up to the others, and Spyridon predicted that he would finish well. About two-thirds through the race, the leader was an Australian, George Flack, an experienced runner who had performed well in the 800 and 1500-meter races earlier in the Games. But at this distance, his inexperience began to show, and the confident, methodical Greek was right on his heels. Then George Flack collapsed and signaled that he would continue no further. Spyridon left all the remaining competitors far behind him, and as the news traveled down the course toward the stadium, a cry of Helene, Helene erupted among the amazed Greeks. And as he entered the Panthenatic Stadium for the final lap of the race, he was joined by Princes George and Constantine, sons of the King of Greece. And when he crossed the finish line, wild celebrations broke out all over Athens. Here's the official report from the 1896 Games.
1: Here, the Olympiconic victor was received with full honor. The king rose from his seat and congratulated him most warmly on his success. Some of the king's aides-de-camp and several members of the committee went so far as to kiss and embrace the victor, who was finally carried in triumph under the vaulted entrance.
0: It's important to remember that Greece had long been under the control of the Ottoman Empire and had only tasted their own freedom for less than 50 years, Recovering from their fight for freedom and violent internal revolution meant that they didn't have much wealth or modern infrastructure, and the victory of Spyridon Lewis was a galvanizing moment of national pride, the perfect cap to their reintroduction of the Olympic games. Spyridon enjoyed the life of a national hero. A funny fact about the first modern Olympics is that winners received silver medals and runners-up received copper. Gold was considered too ostentatious. Nevertheless, the IOC officially recognizes Spyridon Lewis as a gold medalist. He also received many impromptu gifts of jewelry and cash. A local barber shop awarded him free shaves for life. He was also given a goat. Now we don't know exactly what became of that goat, but we can certainly hope that he and Spyridon had a long and wonderful friendship. Part 5. Spiridon Lewis was arguably the first hero of the modern Olympics. His victory vindicated Baron de Coubertin's ideal of the classical amateur. A commoner who came in from the fields for a few days, mastered a field of champions from across the world. He never appeared on a Wheaties box and never signed a deal to endorse a pair of sneakers. He just ran 25 miles faster than anyone else could And became a legend so powerful it turned a one-time spectacle into the world's most popular athletic endeavor the word marathon itself became synonymous with a long grueling trial with triumph waiting at the end the olympic arts program went in the opposite direction the more popular it became the harder it was for amateurs to even participate perhaps if a few strokes of history had gone in another direction it could have survived Or maybe the quirky and singular opinion of one man was never going to last as the Olympic movement grew. You have to wonder whether the global popularity of the modern Olympics today would have pleased him, or if the spectacle of modern, professional athletes achieving feats impossibly out of reach for any amateur would have brought him grief. Amateur athletics still happen all over the world today, and there, where any future Olympian discovers their gifts. That vision of a renaissance person, well-developed in both mind and body, is absolutely a worthy one. The Games inspire people to better themselves, they bring entertainment and joy, and they let athletes from over 100 nations march into the Olympic stadiums as equals. War, economic calamity, and the disputes of powerful leaders, and the twists of historical fate, they've all shaped the Games. So have its successes and the appetites of its worldwide audience. Even the strange, often funny experiments we've shared here in trying to define an Olympic event changed the character of the games as they grew. But at least something of that original vision remains. In 1912, the gold medal winner for poetry in the first ever Olympic arts program was called Ode to Sport, and one passage reads,
1: O sport, you are justice. The perfect equity for which men strive in vain in their social institutions is your constant companion. No one can jump a centimeter higher than the height he can jump, nor run a minute longer than the length he can run. The limits of his success are determined solely by his own physical and moral strength. Ode
0: to Sport, by the way, was written by amateur poet, Baron Pierre de Coubertat, founder of the modern Olympics and an Olympic gold medalist. He submitted it under a pseudonym But won't we always wonder just how anonymous his work really was? Now there's one last morsel we wanted to share. Shooting events have been a part of the Olympics since very early in their existence. They've never faced any question about their legitimacy as a sport. Marksmanship is a rare skill. But you might be surprised to learn that Very briefly, the Olympic Games attempted to introduce dueling. In the 1906 games in Athens, the ones we'll talk about next time, which are no longer considered Olympic Games, there were actually two pistol dueling events. Both were held at a range of 20 meters. The first event was untimed. Shooters were judged for accuracy and style rather than speed. The second event was a rapid-fire pistol event called Au Commandement. At a signal from the judge, the shooter would indicate his readiness, raise his gun from his hip, and, at a count of three, open fire at a rate of up to 100 shots per minute, using an automatic pistol. At the end of the allotted time, the shooter was ordered to cease. Rankings were determined based on how many shots struck the target during the rapid-fire event. But just to reassure you, they weren't shooting bullets at a living person. Actual dueling was outlawed in most of Europe by that time. So Olympic duelists shot at specially prepared dummies who were dressed in frock coats. I certainly wish I could have been there. Thank you for listening to my dark path. I'm MF Thomas, the creator and host. I produced the show with Ashley Whitesides and Dane Hendricks. Our creative director is Dom Purdy. This story was prepared for us by our lead researcher and historian, Alex Bagassi. Our senior story editor is Nicholas Thurkettle. Thank you to them and the entire My Dark Path team. Please take a moment and give My Dark Path a five-star rating wherever you're listening and share it with friends and family. This really helps the show reach a broader audience. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. And until next time, good night.
1: there is no turning back you take the red pill you stay in wonderland and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes follow the white rabbit who finished second after spirit on lewis who finished second after spirit on lewis